Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, Abraham, Father of All Who Believe, with a message entitled, Learning to Trust. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 to 2, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The most important reason why Christians become discouraged in their spiritual walk is because the way they came to know Christ is disconnected from the way they're presently following him. Let me explain that. Before we came to know Christ, we heard of the gospel and found out that we can get right with God. No, you don't have to be good enough. No, you don't have to do something for God. He did it all. And all you were required to do was believe. And so we learn to surrender to Christ in faith, trusting in his power and in his power alone. And he loves us, and all he wants in return is for us to believe in him and bask in his love for eternity. And that's wonderful. You know, I've prayed with many people who have told me that they simply could not refuse such wonderful love. But sometime after that, we're faced with a series of demands that made us think that we're not good enough. Are you having devotions every day? Wow, we say, I guess I'm not. Answer, well, God thinks that's not good enough. I remember years ago hearing a song in which the songwriter put into God's mouth these words. He said, if you don't talk to me every day, don't talk to me at all. And so we hear in that song that God is so disgusted with our faithlessness, he doesn't even want to talk to us. And by the way, are you praying enough? Well, no, not good enough. Are you studying your Bible exegetically? No. How about reading it devotionally? Are you involved in service? How about sharing your faith? How about developing relationships with neighbors? How about learning how to do evangelism? How about discovering your spiritual gifts? Are you resisting temptation? Are you a proper parent and a husband or a wife? Do you manage your money like a good steward of God's resources? Are you involved in caring for the poor? Do you watch too much TV? Do you spend too much time on social media? The list just goes on and on. And finally, we're overwhelmed with our inadequacies. God seems to want so much, and we're such failures. And God must think it's an imposition to even talk to us. And so we redouble our efforts. But in the process of trying to be good Christians, we suddenly discover that what's really lacking is faith and hope and love. And it's crazy because if we aren't careful, we might add those on top of everything else that we're supposed to do. Now, if that's you, I want to help you today. I want you to know the difference between striving for godliness and works-based righteousness. I want you to bask in the assurance that God desires a relationship with you and nothing can snatch you out of his hand, even while you struggle against the flesh with all your might, knowing that such a battle is a matter of life and death, and yet you're going to win that war by his grace. You know, in our ongoing study of the life of Abram, we've come to Genesis 16, and today we're going to go no further than the first two verses. Now, that may seem strange, but there is so much at stake here. If we don't pause and take extra time, we're going to miss something very valuable that the Spirit of God wants to teach us. It's so important that we must not go quickly past these two verses. We're going to learn about Abram and Sarah and the terrible mistake that they made about what God wanted in their lives, the same kind of mistake that we make in our own spiritual growth. 
know, they heard God's promises and then thought that they had to accomplish it on their own strength. Well, does that sound familiar? Let's read Genesis 16:1-2. Now Sarah Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. See, I want us to imagine what happened here. Abram and Sarah knew that God had a plan for their lives. That plan was stated in chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. I will make of you a great nation. And that plan was reinforced in Genesis 15 when God physically demonstrated his commitment to that promise. God entered into a sacred agreement with Abram called a covenant wherein God obligated himself to that statement that Abram would have a child from his own body and that he would become the father of a people so great that it would be impossible to count them. So Abram and Sarah did exactly what so many of us would do as well. If that's God's plan for our lives, how are we going to accomplish that? So let's devise a plan. We need a plan. After all, God doesn't just want us to sit on our duffs and do nothing, does he? Well, of course not. But they have a problem. Remember the problem that has constantly plagued them was brought to our attention way back in Genesis 11, verse 30. And there we read, now Sarah was barren. She had no child. I want you to imagine being Sarah. God promised your husband that a child would come from his own body. But she might have noticed that she had not been mentioned. She may have been overwhelmed by a sense that she was a failure. Failure as a woman, a failure as a follower of God. Perhaps God had rejected her as the agency of blessing. Maybe she wasn't worthy. And so she did what was, in that day, a common practice among the wealthy. She offered her handmaiden to her husband. You know, according to the practices of that day, that child would become responsible to the wife and not the mother. Sarah would raise the child as her own, and the handmaiden would become secondary. But as we know, as we carry on in the story, that didn't seem to happen. Their plans would run into a very real family problem. See, I can't imagine that Abram and Sarah would ever have thought that this action was sinful, or that it was even an act of unbelief. I mean, after all, they might have reasoned, God has promised us that Abram would become a mighty nation, and we do believe. And so we're taking the next logical step that would make this come true. It's all so reasonable. See, it all made sense. It was the perfect plan because it was the plan of God for Abram, and there was nothing else that they could do. But there really are problems in this schema. The first is one that modern readers would immediately pick out. We now live in the light of later revelation, and we know the seventh and the tenth commandment. You shall not commit adultery. And you shall not desire what's not yours. Indeed, although the culture around Abram and Sarah thought of their decision as normal, apparently God didn't. God calls this adultery. But we might excuse Abram and Sarah. After all, they didn't have the law, and they might not have known that God would condemn this. But they might have known that the purpose of marriage was so that a man would leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two would become one flesh. They might have known that theirs was a sacred bond, a union, which was God's ordinance for the human race. But then again, they might not have known that either. We're left guessing what their moral center would have looked like and what their understanding of God's ways would have looked like. The giving of the law was still 400 years away. 
but still something seems wrong here. It might be that the nature of God's promise was meant to seem impossible. I mean, after all, does it seem to us, or for that matter to Abram, that becoming a nation more than could be counted and being the center of the earth's blessing was humanly doable? I mean, unless God would intervene, Abram would never have become a great nation. Abram was supposed to be dependent upon the promise and not on his own designs nor on his own strength to accomplish this. I hope you're hearing the parallel that I'm making. Are we to grow in holiness, crucifying the flesh and walking in the precepts of God? Well, yes. Given our fallen nature, does that even sound remotely doable? You see, obeying God in our own power always results in failure and great harm. And why is that? That's because obeying God in our own strength always results in two very important problems. First, obeying God in our own strength is based upon immediate results only. But what's wrong with immediate results? Well, nothing at all, except that short-term solutions can, in fact, be the cause of long-term problems. When all we ask is, does it work today? Rather than, what does it mean for the glory of the eternal God? The difference becomes immediately apparent. You know, the second very important problem is this. Obeying God out of our own strength is always premised on external law-keeping. When it comes to having devotions, prayer, service, and all the things that are good and right, well, those very things can become an external list or check marks. And it isn't long until the check marks, rather than the intimacy with God and relying on His power, finding delight in Him. You see, it's check marks that we begin to pay attention to. And soon we begin to wonder why, having done all of that, God still seems so distant. Abram and Sarah thought that they could do something to bring about God's plan, not knowing that their short-term plan would result in long-term pain and would inspire millions and millions of people throughout history to serve God out of their own strength rather than in reliance on the grace of God. Back to the Bible Canada, we're so humbled to see how God is using this ministry to speak the truths of His Word into lives across the nation and beyond. It's our mandate to faithfully present the Scriptures exactly as they are to everyone without barrier. And it is so encouraging to see how many listeners stand with us in this commitment. Your gifts are the momentum that helps sustain this Bible teaching and engagement ministry and propels these messages to eyes and ears and hearts from all walks of life. We hear from listeners every week of the impact that Back to the Bible Canada is having on their spiritual journey. Sam wrote, I have learned so much over the past few years from the teachings of this ministry, which in turn has helped me lead my family spiritually. Thanks, Sam. Now, to support this Bible teaching ministry, or to learn about the free Bible resource this month being offered, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The minute Abram and Sarah settled on a plan to have a baby through Sarah's personal Egyptian slave girl, Hagar, well, everything seemed set. 
We're not told where Sarah obtained this girl, but I have no doubt that she came from Pharaoh's court. She was likely a part of that ill-fated trip to Egypt that was the first sign of Abram's inability to believe God. Their Pharaoh made Abram rich, and their Sarah, as a result of her time in Pharaoh's harem, was likely assigned a handmaiden whom she took with her after they left on their disastrous detour in Egypt. Now, this handmaiden becomes an active part of a human solution of Abram's fulfilling of God's promise. And so Abram decides to lie with Hagar, and the results are immediate. Hagar becomes pregnant, and now, at least so it must have seemed, now God's promise to Abram was about to be fulfilled, or was it? You know that, in fact, what was a common-sense, short-term solution plagued not only their family, but has plagued the entire world. I'm going to say more about this in a later address, but we can see that obeying God out of our strength and wisdom results in short-term success rather than the long-term glory of God. But I also mentioned that what they did resulted in an idea, even a doctrine, of external law-keeping as the means of earning God's favor. In other words, what on one hand looked like positive, visible, tangible results was in reality disconnected from the hidden, the inner, the secret place of a heart that trusts only in God. See, when we concern ourselves only with external appearance, when we assume that God is delighted in our performance, and we become profoundly proud, and then we lack and trust in Him. Do's and don'ts as a means of knowing God are devastating to the soul and never deliver us from sin. See, it may surprise us to know that this understanding of Abram and Sarah's decision to have a child through Hagar is discussed at some length in the book of Galatians. It seems that Paul thought that Abram's decision to have a child by Hagar is the same decision that the Pharisees made when they chose to try to become righteous by works of the law rather than depending on grace. The Pharisees, in essence, were given life and a philosophical foundation in this action so many years before them. Is that true? Is the birth of Ishmael a birth that not only inspired the Pharisees, but has also inspired the second largest religion in the world today, really a result of a man's efforts to obtain the promises of God? Were the Pharisees really inspired by Hagar and Ishmael rather than Sarah and Isaac? Well, according to Paul, this fatal choice by Abram and Sarah has inspired works-based religion everywhere. So let's try to understand Paul's reasoning. The book of Galatians was very likely written shortly after the Council of Jerusalem. The Council of Jerusalem was the first meeting of what was then the global church. It was a meeting to discuss a theological problem that might have torn the early church in two. The question was whether Gentile believers in Jesus should be required to be circumcised. In Acts 15, the apostles and key leaders of the church came together to consider the question of whether Gentile converts should be called upon to submit to circumcision, the keeping of dietary laws, and Jewish special feast days and Sabbath days. And so after some discussion, the apostles agreed that they should not. But that wasn't the end of the matter. You see, those who wanted unique laws of Judaism applied to Gentiles were a group of people called Judaizers. They began to make trouble and influence others, and Paul writes the book of Galatians to counter the influence of the Judaizers because this problem was now beginning to affect a number of churches. The theme of the book is summed up in Galatians 2, 15 to 16. 
There we read, We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now, in other words, the way to be right with God is through faith and through faith alone. No keeping of the law will make you right with God. But, but here was the problem. Some Christians felt that you get saved by faith, but that you grow in Christ through law-keeping. That is, the way into the door was by trust and grace, and the way to progress was by working hard, by becoming all that God wants us to become. Does that sound familiar today? And here is Paul's response, and I'm reading Galatians 3, verses 1 to 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you really so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? See, in other words, very silly and foolish Christians believe that you get saved by faith and then you grow spiritually by human effort. We entered into God's presence through the promise, and now are we required to grow in that promise in what we can accomplish through our own efforts? You know, that's what I call obeying God in our own power. You know, it may seem like common sense and it may produce immediate results, but it's always long-term failure. It thrives on the idea of external law-keeping. So with that as a background, let's hear what Paul says about the account of Abraham in Genesis 16. I'm reading Galatians 4, verses 21 to 26. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is from above is free, and she is our mother. See, Paul tells us that the story of the birth of Ishmael and the story of the birth of Isaac actually represents two different covenants. The birth of Ishmael, I mean, this boy that was born because of a plan concocted by Abram and Sarai, this boy that was born representing the best human effort to get what God has promised, this story is the story of the Old Covenant. It's the story of law-keeping and works. In this account, Ishmael is a child of the flesh. It's the very best that human beings can do to accomplish what God has promised. But that's the point of law-keeping. You have to keep all the laws to live. In other words, when you keep all the laws, you demonstrate just how committed to God you are and how holy you are. And then God is obligated to bless you. After all, you've done your part. Now we believe God needs to do his part. And the sad thing is, many of us actually think this way. You foolish Galatians. Now, here, here's what we know about this. This is the shortest distance to spiritual slavery and long-term heartache. That's exactly what Paul is saying in Galatians 4.24. These women are two covenants, one bearing children for slavery, the other bearing children that are free. Later on in Galatians 4.31, he will say to Christians, So brothers, 
We are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. See, Paul contrasts a son of the flesh to a son of freedom. Now, there's so much more to be said about this, and I'm going to complete this lesson in the next broadcast, so I want you to listen to that as well. But for Paul and those who believe, this decision to fulfill the promises of God in our power destroys the spiritual lives of countless people, and it's a lesson that must not be overlooked. You know, for those of you who are struggling to have daily devotions and pray faithfully and and not to give up, to to serve Christ by discovering your spiritual gifts and to give your finances in in a sacrificial manner and to struggle to overcome the desires of the flesh, might I say, oh, that's good. But if you think that this is something that you can accomplish by your power rather than by a gift of grace, you are as foolish as the Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Do you think you start in the spirit and end in the flesh? You see, your devotions can be God's gift so that you never forget his grace and continue to trust, or your devotions can become the cruel taskmaster of the law. One leads to ever-increasing freedom, and the other leads to slavery under which your soul is going to groan. Unless you learn to lean hard on his power, confess daily your absolute inability to accomplish even the slightest thing that he has promised you, until you abandon all of your own efforts, you will forever be a child of Hagar and not a child of Sarah. But your God wants you to live in freedom and grace and in utter and helpless reliance on him. Rejoice, the way forward is not by law, but by grace through promise. John, this is a compelling message, but I need to ask you this question. How do I differentiate between, you know, pursuing things uh, on my own strength and allowing the Spirit of God to work in and through me? It's confusing at times for me. Sure, it is, but I can give a couple of markers that might indicate the difference. I mean, when we're doing things in the flesh, we begin to assume that we have some reward coming for what we've accomplished. I mean, when the minute we think that God owes us something, I mean, that ought to be a little signal in our hearts that says, you know, something's wrong here. I mean, another thing that I think that we can look at is, you know, when when we think that there is a duty that we must perform for God, that in some way, God needs me to act in this way, rather than seeing the commands as for my own good. Uh, Again, I think that'll be a little indicator. I mean, all God's commands are given for our own good and not for, for God's good. Amen. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. God never promised that this life would be easy, but he did promise that he would be there with us, guiding our footsteps along the way, in our working, deciding, moving, marrying and burying, through grief or joy in family and community, God is present. He is active in all the seasons of life. But the truths of God's faithfulness can become muted by the noise of our present circumstances. That's why this month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering a free booklet called Restored, A Story of Lives Redeemed. It walks us through the book of Ruth and the seed of hope that one family's redemption story offers to us all. If you're in need of encouragement in your own story, this booklet is for you. 
to request your free copy today, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.